to have you open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 8, if you would please, where we're going to continue on in our study. You can take out your message notes as well, give you some fill-ins in just a few minutes. And if this is your first time joining us, we've been studying this New Testament book that's devoted to giving us the origins of the Christian church. The book of Acts is all about our origin story of, of church and Christianity. We've been tracking this growth and expansion of the very first ever Christian church, which is located in Jerusalem. And along the way, we've been studying uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at sermons from the Apostle Peter. And there's been salvations and healings and baptisms and growth. And and just like just a neat uh, experience that the people were having in this church And the gospel is moving forward with astounding results. And we've also been studying the opposition to the gospel. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, which is true in physics. I think it's true in spiritual matters as well. There's been deep frustration by the Jewish leadership of the Christians who are kind of taking over Jerusalem. There's also some animosity from the Roman leadership, the governing authorities. And then there's this growing and building low-level persecution of the apostles, this, uh, this persecution that starts rather benignly, but it's been building. And then it culminated with the first Christian martyr, the public execution of Stephen is what we looked at last weekend. And I'd like to thank Steve Grace, who led us through the scriptures last weekend, focusing on chapter 7, in which we learn that Stephen is defending himself against the attacks of the Jewish leadership. And he's literally proclaiming the gospel while he's being stoned to death. And it's really a beautiful and astounding, sad story. In that, we also briefly met for the very first time a rising star in Jewish leadership who was there agreeing with the execution, a man named Saul, who's pretty young here. He's around 33 years old or 34 years old. And, uh, and we're going to meet uh, him more today and then really learn a lot about the Apostle Paul as the book unfolds. So here we go. Let's, let's continue now. And let's go into eight and let's read the first eight verses and then we'll do some study together. Here's what the text says. And Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds in Samaria, the crowds with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. All right, let's stop there now. Uh, Luke is, is telling us some things here. He's concluding the death of Stephen by introducing us to a couple of new characters, uh, new people in this book, uh, important figures. Of course, we met Saw a little bit for the first time. Here we see that he's, um, he's here again. And, and he really is the church's greatest persecutor at this point. And he's also the church's greatest evangelist. 
they're, they're not two individuals. It's the same man, but there is transformation in between there. Uh, Saul, that's your first fill-ins. Okay, so who's doing fill-ins today? Uh, anybody? Okay, so here's your fill-in. Saul is the greatest persecutor and simultaneously in this one individual, the greatest evangelist of the early church. Uh, he's both of these things eventually, but in chapters seven through nine, he's just Saul the persecutor. And man, is he going for it. Like he is persecuting his head off, right? He's doing evil things to the saints. He's raging against the Christians. Luke tells us that Saul approved of Stephen's uh, execution, which means like Saul wasn't just there by happenstance and he's like, oh yeah, sure, I'll, I'll hold the coats. What are you guys doing? Like he wanted Stephen to die a heretic's death. He's there purposefully for that purpose. And while the, the Christians are burying him, uh, Stephen, they're, 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 they're lamenting this loss. He's going to their homes and yanking out husbands and wives and people and putting them in prison, these, court, these Christians. What he's trying to do is get them to blaspheme God so then he can kill them. To blaspheme the Lord brought a capital punishment in the Jewish justice system. So, so Saul, is, Saul is awful. Now, decades later, Saul, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, he's going to recount in his own words just how obsessed he was being here. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of an appetizer. So this is a text from Acts chapter 26. So about 16 chapters. So we'll get there in about a year. Uh, but for now... <laughs> Here's what he says. This is Paul talking. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Like he was part of the machine of martyrdom and persecution. And this is, I mean, he is, he is unhinged. He is, he is like taking the orders from the chief priests and then some and adding to it. This was how zealous he was to squash the church. Now, when we read this, we got to keep in mind a couple of things about Saul's unrelenting attacks here. And the first thing we got to keep in mind is that Saul is a couple weeks away from becoming a Christian here. In just a couple weeks, Jesus is going to reach down through time and space and and show himself to Saul and turn his world completely upside down and transform him from the inside out. That's gonna happen really, really soon. But looking at him right here in chapter eight, you would never guess, you would never predict that this dude is about to bow his knee to Jesus, to King Jesus, and become born again to the living hope in Jesus Christ. He is so far from God on the surface, but yet, in reality, what we're going to read is he's really close to the Lord. And that's because the Lord is working in his life underneath the surface in the hidden places of his soul that no one could see. And this is good news. This is good news, not only for the situation, but let's expand it and apply it. Because do you have someone in your life that you look at their life and they're like, there is no way this person is ever becoming a Christian. I mean, they are so far from God. They are busting hell. They have one foot in hell right now, Billy. I mean, they are. And maybe it's your family. Uh, and that's kind of my story. Uh, hopefully my family's not watching right now. Um, <laughs> And so, and so when we read this, here's the reaction, is that we never, ever, ever give up on anyone, 
no matter how far they seem from Jesus, because, because the Lord is perhaps doing a good and secret work, and they're right on the precipice of becoming a, a Christ follower. Now, again, you may have a friend, and you're like, oh my gosh, you don't know this friend of mine. He is so far gone. He's never going to get saved. If you've ever thought that, I, I think that. I've had those thoughts. I've had those thoughts. Or maybe you've got a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, or a prodigal spouse in your life, and they're really living a lifestyle really far from Jesus. And it's like, wow, they are so, they are, they are living, it's like they're, they're, they're really living almost exactly the opposite of a lifestyle of the Lord. And, and I just, and it's just so, it can be so discouraging. Is anybody with me? It can be so discouraging. You're just like, oh my goodness. Ooh, oh, Lord, 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 Lord. All right, keep in mind as you study the book of Acts, that if Saul can meet Jesus, anybody can at any time. So the action item is not only are we to never give up, but we're to keep praying for our Sauls. So who are your Sauls? Who are your Sauls? All right, do you have a Saul in your life? All right, do you know what I mean by that? I don't mean like a literal friend, like you better call Saul or a guy named Saul. I'm talking about him as an archetype of an individual who's far from the Lord. Keep praying for your Sauls. Keep trusting in the Lord, who, who, those of you, those are those people in our life that are kicking against the Lord. God is working in their life. Don't give up. Don't give up. That's why you're there. Don't give up on your souls. Now, the second thing you have to remember here, and this is really interesting to me, is, okay, Luke is writing this text. The author is Dr. Luke. We've talked a lot about him. Uh, and, and what we're going to see later also in, in Acts is Luke and Paul eventually become really good friends really good buddies. They're very close with each other. They're ministry partners. Luke accompanies Paul. Paul goes on these really long missionary journeys. His second and third missionary journey in the book of Acts, Luke is with him. And it's really interesting. Later, we're going to get to a chapter and, and the narrative turns to we, like we were in a city. And that's because it's in the, it's in the first person plural because Luke is with Paul. And, and it's really fascinating. When Paul is under house arrest for two years, a lot of his friends abandon him, but Luke is with him still. Now, this is a very unlikely pairing because Paul is a very Jewish man. He's very Jewish. He's like a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a law dog, man. He's like, he really believes in the law so much as a Jewish person. And, and then there's Luke, who's an uncircumcised Gentile. So it was not ever going to happen for a super Jewish law dog dude to ever become friends with an uncircumcised Gentile because they weren't allowed to be in the same room. They weren't allowed to hang out. They weren't allowed to eat together. And yet in Jesus, they become like best friends. And that's like so unlikely. That's never going to happen naturally speaking, only supernaturally speaking. Outside of Jesus, stuff like this never happens. But here we see this relationship developing. So here's the takeaway for you and for me. And that's be open to friendships with your Pauls. Okay, again, think archetype, think metaphor. Who are the people around you that you're like, on in a natural sense, you would never be friends, you would never be partners, you would never be connected with them in any way, shape, or form because maybe they're too different or they come from different places or their personalities don't necessarily match with yours. So in the scriptures, we see these unlikely friendships happening, and that's because the Lord is doing some things in our life to connect us with people. Another way to say this is if you only stay in relationships with people just like you, just like your, your personality, your hobbies, your backgrounds, uh, you know, these kinds of things, you just limit God's work in your life. 
big time. You so limit God's work in your life. Because when you meet Christ, he opens up your life to all kinds of new possibilities, new friendships, new, new, new partnerships, new fellowship opportunities that would never have come your way had you not had Jesus at the central dynamic in your life. Have you ever had this yet? Have you, do you have a friend who's a Christian friend that you would never be friends with unless you both were Christians? You don't have to answer that. Maybe the answer is yes or no. Maybe just think about it. And if you're not there yet, boy, life gets fun. When you ha- start hanging out with, if maybe you're a nerd, maybe you're an introvert, maybe you're, I don't know, you're a certain ethnicity or certain background, or you're, you're, you're super quiet and you're, you know, now you're in a group or something with a Christian and they're the opposite of you. And you're like, I would never hang out with that obnoxious Swiss guy. Um, that's me. Uh, <clears throat> And God may be putting you together. So it's so cool to see how, how this relationship is a pattern for our own relationships as believers. So, so one of the ways in which this can kind of materialize is you jump into a community group here at Redeemers. We've got groups and Bible studies that meet midweek. They're smaller groups where you can get to know each other. And this can really open up your life to new relationships, new friendships, that you may never have developed outside of your common faith in Jesus. Be open to this because I I think there's so many connections and so many partnerships that are developing that God is doing where his work can flow, his goodness can flow, his blessing can flow in ways that are exponential. And here we see that and it's it's a beautiful thing. What you think about that, guys? What you think? You think you like that? All right, let's pray for that. Let's do that. Okay, let's keep going because there's another leader that, that Luke introduces us to here. And uh, I'll intro this. Look at verses one and four. I'll just mash them together on the screen. Again, there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Interesting. Take note of that. And then in verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, so, so the, the martyrdom of Stephen unleashed this, this citywide persecution in Jerusalem. It wasn't just Stephen's martyrdom. It just kind of opened up the floodgates. And Saul was doing this. Other Jewish leaders were doing this. And so the Christians that were living there were like, we got to get out of here. And they left. They left, not like left, like, oh, I got my go bag. I'm going to come home, you know, when this is over. Like they left, left. They were like, we got to get out of here. And they, they scattered. And what does it say happened? What, is, what happened when they scattered? They went about, what does it say? Preaching. Preaching the word. So they were sharing the gospel as they were running away. Now, this is really fascinating because up until this point, the gospel was only in Jerusalem. You could not hear the gospel anywhere else on planet Earth, Right? And this is partly why the Jerusalem church was so huge. We think, we think, we're estimating that the church was between 10 and 15,000 people by Acts, end of Acts 7. That's a big church. That's a really big, do you think that's a big church? That's a big church, even by today's standards. And that's because the gospel had not been exported into any other geographical area. Therefore, there was this like super concentration of ministry. All the leaders, all the 12 apostles were in Jerusalem. All the sermons were being preached. 
all the evangelism and the healings and the miracles and the discipleship was happening just in one single place. And, and it was pretty successful. Having a church that big with that much fruit, that's super successful ministry. And also, there were still unsaved people everywhere. The whole city had not come to the Lord, and so there was still work to be done. But, okay, if you could find an area of improvement or whatever, maybe this was an issue even, this wasn't exactly what Jesus had instructed the guys to do, the Christians to do. Jesus, Jesus, when, remember when he was being ascended, like right before he launched up, he was like, oh, hey, by the way, you guys need to go into all the earth and preach the gospel. He said this several times. This was his command. I'll give you one example. Mark 16, 15. And Jesus said to them, to the disciples, Go, what did he say? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So he said, go. So he didn't say stay, he said go. So turn to your neighbor and say, God said go. God said go. God said go. God said go. Go, go. Not stay, he said go. You gotta go. You gotta go. Uh, If you're a redneck, it's you gotta get. Yeah, get, get. It's a cheap, funny joke. Okay, so why is this? The message of the gospel is a worldwide message, right? All nations, all people, all groups and languages and races and ethnicities are invited and included into the kingdom of God, into Jesus's kingdom. The gospel, Christianity, is not just a a Israeli, Israelite religion. It's not just a Jewish sect. It's not just a Western religion. If anybody were to ever tell you, oh, Christianity is a Western religion, it's a white man's religion, that's false. It's false. It never was intended, and it actually never was, and it still isn't. The biggest parts of the worldwide church that are growing are in all non-Anglo areas today, in Latin Latin parts of the world, in Asian parts of the world, in African parts of the world. The church is exploding. The the Christian church is exploding. There There are more Christians being made in Asia than there are in all of Europe and North America, okay? So the church is not a white man's religion. Christianity is not. It is a multi-ethnic, multinational, worldwide kingdom of God. Everyone is included. This is the Christian faith, guys. This is the Christian faith. And so we see Jesus saying, go, 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 go out, spread, go, talk to the, talk to the people around you, talk to the other countries, other nations, okay? All right, this is repeated multiple times. You can see those references on your notes. One of those is back in the beginning of Acts. Jesus, again, right before he is ascended, he says explicitly there to go. Look at verse one, uh, eight, verse chapter, sorry, what is this? Uh, Acts 1, eight. Yeah, I know, I talk, I talk so fast that I can't, my, my words are just clogged up in there and then they eventually, okay. So you will be my witnesses. You will preach the gospel in Jerusalem you notice Jesus here, he says, some, he says some specific locations. Jerusalem, okay, check, we got that. In all of Judea, that's a little area right outside of Jerusalem. And Samaria, I'll talk about that in a second. And then to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem is just the beginning. So the, the, the apostles and the Christians, they hadn't done the other things yet. And there's some discussion as to why in the commentaries. Why didn't the apostles get after it yet? 
Um, we don't know. And we have to be cautious about how much we uh, criticize here uh, because the text is ambiguous. M- maybe things were pretty comfortable. Maybe there was like a plan to start going a little bit later. We don't know. At any rate, what happens is this persecution forces the issue. It comes upon the city and then it scatters the Christians. There's a diaspora, another diaspora, which we talked about earlier this year, which means a scattering. That word diaspora comes from the word spore or seed. It's like the seed is being thrown out and scattered. So God is doing this. He's not, he's, it's not his will that Christians are martyred, but will, the Lord will use this type of activity, human activity for his glory. And so that here we see the Christians start running away, escaping Jerusalem. And where do they go? They go to the next two places on Jesus' list. They go to Judea and Samaria. You can put up Acts 1 8 uh, real quick uh, again. So they go to Judea and Samaria. And they disperse. And wherever they land, they share the gospel. So this is, here's the teaching. And I've said this before. Uh, and I'm going to say this maybe a few more times before we're done with our study in Acts. But it's worth repeating. I think, I think sometimes repetition is good. I think sometimes repetition is good. I think sometimes repetition is good because it helps us memorize things. Here it is. Opposition to the gospel didn't stop the gospel. It expanded the gospel. Opposition to the gospel didn't stop the gospel, didn't slow the gospel down, didn't thwart the gospel. Opposition actually expanded it. It sped it up. It spread it out. And it caused the church to grow exponentially even more. This is what happens in the Bible This is a phenomenon that you see in the scriptures, and then you also see this throughout Christian history, 2,000 years of Christian history, and this is proven out time and time again. I'll give you one example. Many of you know uh, the history behind the nation of Cambodia. In the mid-1970s, there was a a dictator named Pol Pot who came to power uh, with the Khmer Rouge communist regime, and as he took over the nation of, of Cambodia. His, this is really kind of a famous historical, the killing fields took place and over 2 million Cambodians were murdered uh, ruthlessly by Pol Pot's regime. And included in that 2 million were almost all the Christians. And I'm really sorry that I keep getting choked up when I talk about the persecuted church, but I, I, there's a part of me that's like, you know, my Swiss male side says to, to not, just not to knock it off, knock it off. But I, I, I literally, I can't help it. It's in every, it's in every service too. Um, all the Christians, all, almost all the Christians were wiped out. And the people who count these things, in 1981, they did a survey in Cambodia and there were exactly three pastors left in the whole country. Three Christian pastors survived. And that was what was left. But in the 42 years since then, I'm happy to report that Cambodia has experienced the most evangelical growth of any Southeast Asian nation. And currently, there are over 3% of the entire 16 million population turning to Christ. This is astounding growth, astounding growth, astounding growth. Half a million Christians are now in Cambodia. Praise God. So the gospel, opposition to the gospel didn't stop to the gospel, it expanded the gospel. 
And so the gospel we see back to the text expands here in this arena, in this geographical area amidst the persecution. The Christians were scattered. They preached where they were. This is true in Cambodia. Some of the people were sent to these camps on the Thai border and the Thais, the Thais got saved because the Cambodian Christians that were there preached the gospel where they went. Okay, so um, I'm gonna not talk about that anymore. I wanna go back to the text and, and just point something out with you. And that's Luke, Luke tells us that the apostles didn't scatter. Did you notice this? This is very interesting. They, the, the apostles all stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't go. And, and Luke doesn't tell us why or what they did during this period. Presumably they continued to minister to the, the city even in the midst of this heat that they were getting. But I believe this detail is super important because I think that Luke is making a very important point to each and all of us. And the point is this. The first time the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem, it was through the ministry of ordinary people and not through the apostles. So the Great Commission, which is our, our job, is to preach the gospel to the whole world, make disciples of all nations, The Great Commission, this is a pattern of how it will be completed. That is, it will be completed through ordinary Christians, not super Christians. Ordinary Christians will reach the world for Christ. Ordinary Christians, as we're scattered, sometimes by force, sometimes by choice, wherever we go, what we do when we land is we we reach out to our neighbors, we pray for those around us, and we share the gospel message to those that are willing to hear. This is what Christians do. This is what we do. This is, not, this is not something that we're forced to do. It's because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws it out of us. Each one of us, all of us, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit living in you. And it is this empowerment by the Spirit that drives this evangelism and this sharing. And again, as the Lord scatters us around, the empowered believers, ordinary, everyday believers go about sharing their faith in Jesus. Now, it is the job of the apostles and the church leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but it is the role of the ordinary believer to communicate the gospel and live gospel lives and do the work of the ministry in the highways and byways and neighborhoods and streets and towns and places and nations around the world. God uses the whole church to show and share the grace of Christ to our friends, neighbors, and coworkers, not just the lead pastor or the elders or the staff. He uses all of us, all of us. This is what you signed up. This is what you signed up for when you became a Christian. You, you signed up to be a part of this, to be a part of this work. And you're like, well, I've never, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't really, I don't even really like people, Billy. What are you talking about? I'm not even going to do this. What are you talking? That's okay. That's okay. But what you're going to hear is you're going to hear this Bible teaching and something's going to stir in you like, okay, my life isn't totally doing that yet. Guess what? The word is yet. And, and eventually the Lord's going to use you and you're going to be like, man, I actually shared my faith a little bit today and, and, and no one ran me out of town, right? And you're going to see God use you and your life and your story. And this is the pattern that is set in the book of Acts. And this is the pattern that we have here in our ministry life at Redeemers. We say this a lot. We say it takes the whole world. Sorry, it takes, I I goofed it up. I already messed it up. Here it is on the screen. It takes the whole church to reach the whole world. It takes the whole church. It takes, it takes a whole, a whole, a whole community group to reach that group's street. It takes a whole, a whole 
church family like Redeemers to reach the whole city. It takes all of the churches in Redeemers, uh, with Redeemers and all the churches that are Bible churches to reach the city. It takes the whole church. God uses all of us. So this is the pattern set. Not just the super apostles, but all of us. Is that encouraging to you? I hope it is. It's amazing to be used by the Lord. Now, Luke tells us the name of one of these scattered saints. His name is Philip. So this is our second guy. I finally got there. Philip, the first known missionary to carry the gospel outside of Jerusalem. There were many missionaries, as it turns out. Missionaries are those who go and they share outside of their their areas. There was many Christians escaping, but we're only told the name of one of them. And so here we have another first in the book of Acts, chock full of firsts. Philip is the first cross-cultural missionary named in the scriptures of the Christian faith. Philip the evangelist. Now, just a quick note here. There's another Philip in the New Testament. Sometimes there's people in the Bible that have the same name. The other Philip is an apostle, but our Philip here in eight is not that Philip, he's a different Philip. So he's not one of the 12, he's one of the seven, the magnificent seven. Dun, 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 dun. Um, so what I mean by the seven is, Philip in Acts eight is one of the seven that's mentioned in Acts chapter six, the seven guys who were chosen to wait tables on the widows in the distribution of food in the church, in the Jerusalem church. We, we covered that a few weeks ago. So Stephen was one of those seven. Now we meet another one of the seven, Philip. These were ordinary servants who had extraordinary ministries in addition to their waiting of tables. So Philip, one of the seven, escapes to Samaria and he proclaims the gospel to the Samaritans. And it says a lot of them came to know Jesus. So we have more explosive growth. It's pretty cool. But the thing with Samaria that was the challenge is that it was the last place on planet Earth that Jews wanted to be. So Philip, was a full, he was Jewish, and he landed in Samaria, the last place that Jews typically of the day would want to be. This is your next fill-ins. And the reason is because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They despised each other. Think about groups or ethnicities or groups that don't like each other in your mind. Then there's a lot. There's a lot to pick from on planet Earth. This group hates this group. You know, all kinds of stuff that are coming to our minds. So here's one of those at the top of the hate each other list in this part of the world at this time. They did not like each other at all. Now, let's talk about why. Samaria. Samaria, where was this? Samaria wasn't that far from Jerusalem. It was a region within Israel. It was like a little region sandwiched between Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, and the Galilee, which is a, a lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's really a lake. And, and, and between the Galilee and Judea was this region called Samaria. And in Samaria, there was a city called Samaria. It was kind of the capital city. And Jews who were traveling from, let's say, Judea to the Galilee, you, you, the shortest distance was to just walk right through Samaria. But they didn't. They walked around it. 
They made like a big circle around it. Why? Because they hated the Samaritans so much they didn't even want to be near them. So they put themselves in danger, traveling extra on more dangerous roads than rather that than go through this place. That's how much they wanted to avoid one another. The animosity between the two was, was an old, it was an old feud. All right, it, it stemmed back all the way back to the Assyrian Empire in 722. So let's do a little bit of history. You may recall from your Bible history that the Assyrians uh, gathered power. They were a brutal empire and they were in uh, modern day, what we call Iraq and Iran. And they swept down from the north into northern Israel in 722 BC and they destroyed 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 lost tribes of Israel. That's what we call. And and they, they just wiped them out. And this was God's judgment upon uh, the northern kingdom of Israel for, for centuries of unfaithfulness. And this happened in 722. But the Assyrians stopped short. They didn't, they didn't come all the way down into the southern kingdom, into Judah and Benjamin. They didn't come down to Jerusalem. So they stopped. And what they did was, the Assyrians, they were known for this, they would just kill a lot of people but what they would do with those that were left is they would import other Assyrians into that geographical area for the purpose of intermarriage and intermingling. So they would basically wipe out the ethnic identity through marriage. And that's what they did. They moved a bunch of Assyrians from other parts of their empire into northern Israel. And over the centuries, they intermingled and intermarried with the existing Jewish people that were there, ostensibly creating a completely different race or ethnicity. Now, the Jews in the south, they looked at all this happening and they were detested by it because they valued purity. They valued ethnic purity. They valued not intermingling at all. That was kind of their deal. And so when they considered the Samaritans, they looked at those guys and they were like, man, we hate those guys. They give us a bad name. They're posers. They're like in Harry Potter. They're like, they're like the muggles. They're like the half-blood prince people, right? Harry Potter. Nobody? 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 Okay, forget it. And so when Jesus said, remember Jesus gave the list He's like, hey, go, go, to, go to Jerusalem and take the gospel. And all the Jewish Christians were like, yeah, all right, you bet. Go to Judea and take the gospel. And all the Jewish Christians were like, yeah, awesome. And go to Samaria and take the gospel. And all the Jewish Christians were like, Rrr. did he say that? Did he say, did he not? He made a mistake. I don't think he, I think he said Savannah, Georgia. I don't know what he said. He didn't say Samaria. See, that was a joke because Savannah, Georgia wasn't a thing. Did you, did you get that? Okay. <laughs> you see this animosity surface in the Gospels in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus is in his public ministry. Jesus is, in fact, traveling from the north into Judea. And he doesn't go around in this passage. He doesn't go around Samaria. He decides shockingly to go through it. So he's walking through Samaria with his disciples. And it turns out that the Samaritans didn't like him. And it says they did not welcome Jesus and his group. And so in the middle of this, John and James, the disciples, turn to Jesus and they're torqued off and they're like, hey, Jesus, could you just send down fire from heaven and just burn all these fools up? Just torch them. And they're not joking around. They're serious. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, shut up, fools. Like, he didn't say that. He says he rebukes them. I don't know. I just like to fill in some. So he just rebukes them. He says no. And he rebukes them. That's how much animosity there was. Let's fry them. Let's fry them. Let's torch them. Okay, so the Samaritans weren't innocent either. History tells us they made their own fake temple. And then they said, don't go down to the Jerusalem temple. Come to our temple. Our temple's better. We have the real uh, version of worship. And then they made their own fake Torah. They took the Torah, the actual Torah, and they rewrote it and changed a bunch and said, no, 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 ours is the real Torah from Moses, the the Pentateuch, the first five books. And then they would regularly send war parties into Jerusalem and release pigs into the temple courts to make everything uh, impure. And they would throw bones from dead bodies on the priests to make them impure so that they couldn't minister. And the Jews eventually got all this and they just got, had their fill. So they went up to, uh, they went down to Samaria. It's north, uh, sorry, north from where they were, but it's, it's geographically down a mountain. So they went down into Samaria and they destroyed the fake temple. So this was awful stuff. It had been going on for 600 years. And here we get to Acts chapter 8, and we see a full-blooded Jewish dude named Philip filled with the gospel of Jesus go right into the capital city of Samaria, right into the heart of their evil like rivalry, and begin ministering grace and power and exorcisms and lame people being healed. And then the Samaritans welcome Philip, and they listen intently to the gospel, and they start getting saved, large numbers of them. And all of this is literally a mind-bender because it shouldn't be happening. And the only reason it's happening is because of Jesus Christ. The world is turned upside down in the best way possible. And that is because, my friends, the gospel creates a unity between people and people groups that is impossible to replicate in any other form or fashion. Without Jesus, you can't do this good work because the grace of God overcomes years of racial injustice and sinful patterns and all of these hurts and these these awful things It can overcome these things like no other strategy or program can. We can pass laws to legislate fairness between people and people groups. And we can can help through some of this legislation. But what we cannot ever do is politically make races and cultures actually love each other and fully embrace one another with authenticity. So what politics and government is unable to do, the gospel can do, and that is to bring true racial reconciliation between groups that don't trust each other historically and don't like each other historically. And this is because in Jesus, we have a common savior. You know, when you you become a Christian, your, your thinking is kind of, I don't know, mine was, I should say, it's kind of shifted into a biblical pattern. And what you realize is, it's not necessarily, there's, there's actual racial stuff that needs to be healed. But underneath all of that, there is a problem that we all have in common, regardless of our skin color or our ethnicity. And the problem is sin. <laughs> the problem is universal with humanity. It's just sin. And sin takes on many forms, but it's sin. Sin is sin. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's greed. It's self-sufficiency. It's racism. It's injustice. And the sin problem that we all struggle with can only be solved by one savior. We have one problem and one solution, and that's the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this unites us more than anything else can. And this is what we figured out as Christians. 
is yes, there's, there's these things. There's, 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 a lot, there's a lot that needs to be said here. But what we can say for sure right now is that we're seeing the gospel in action heal things racially and ethnically between people. And it was absolutely unheard of or unpredicted. And this is what happens when Jesus gets a hold of people's lives. Okay, so there's a lot more to be said on this, but let me just get to the final thought because I'm so over time. Let's look at how the passage ends one more time. Verse eight, this is so cool. This is in Samaria, right? Samaria, you got all these Jewish, you got all these Jewish people in there now from Jerusalem, and instead of there being riots and more fighting, there's this. What's there? Joy. <laughs> there's joy. The Samaritans want the preachers from Jerusalem, the Christians from Jerusalem to be there, the ministers, the people. They're welcoming them. First time in history. And there's joy. Joy. Oh, don't you love joy? This is something, guys, that we can't forget. And we have to ask ourselves, like, does our church when we serve and minister to our city, is there joy? Is there joy? And this is a hallmark of the gospel. You know, if, if there were a group or, a, you know, some Christians who come in and, and they come into a place and they, and they, and they make everybody angry and, and, they, and, 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 and the non-Christian people like hide their children from, from this group, and there's no joy. I'm not really sure that's being done according to what the scripture says our pattern is. And so we've got, we've got to make sure, as best we can, that there will be joy with our service and our outreach and our ministry to the lost. Now, there's going to be opposition. We know this. The gospel itself is very confrontational. So there will be some opposition, but there also will be joy as people are released and have freedom in Christ. And this is, this is something that... As our church family, this is our passion, is to reach out to the lost around us such that they want us to be there. And so this is our goal. 